Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Hey there. Hello. Mr. Shanae, how are you? Thank you for calling us. We're so excited about this interview. Yeah. Wow. Is this live or... No, no. It's He said live, but he was Balonian. We're all recorded. <laughs> and just so you know, Bill... What we're going to do is we'll send this to you raw. So if you have any edits you want done or anything, you just have to find me my markers and and send it back. But, um, wow. I mean, we've been talking about this interview for a while now because I don't know if you've ever had anybody who just out of the gate starts out with 125 gold (laughs) or platinum records. I mean. First of all, where do you keep them at? Yeah. If you are, first of all, by the way, it's uh, it's 135. It's over 135. I know nice. you got. He's got more. He's got more. Second of all, the the truth be known, they are literally in boxes in a storage that I I I have threatened to throw away, and my family won't let me. I said, why? I'm going to die, and you're going to throw them away. But the most they would do is that they went through and they picked out the ones that they want, and they are clearly marked on those boxes. Uh, all right, so so Bill, start anything. So Bill, start anything. Let me please, please take the time to apologize profusely for blowing it the other day. Oh no no um, no no, we're fine. Oh, it's no no yes 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 because because uh, I, you know, I'm human. I make mistakes, but and I'm I. I'm a perfectionist, and when it comes to my performance in anything, I really am a, a stickler. And, I mean, I, I have no excuse. It, it, I, I can tell you that I remember, I don't know, I, I forgot one session in my life. It was about 20 years ago, and I can still remember the drive to the studio, how frustrated I was at, you know, at myself. And this was, this was close to that because I was scared spitless that it was live since I was phoning in. <laughs> uh, it was live. And I had visions. Well, he was supposed to call in. Oh, it's funny. He's on a binge, uh, and I don't drink, so it would have been an interesting milkshake binge. But anyway, <laughs> I'm very sorry. You already got that sugar rush. All right, so here's the thing, Bill. We always ask our guests, because they're label executive, label owners, rock stars, all different people, managers, concert promoters. We always say, what was your first gold or platinum record? And since you have amassed 136, can you even remember? Of course you do. You've got to remember the very first one you were given with your name on it. Yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) That's really funny. Um, Well, I'll tell you why it's funny. Um, okay, so the very first one would be Three Dog Night. Nice. Yes! I love that band. Uh, let me ask one other question that we can edit out before we get going here. Um, We're going. We're already going, go? Bill. Um, I, I, you know, I, I tell stories. That's why I wrote a book. I love telling stories. So Excellent. I'm liable to go very long. Excellent. So how much, time, how much time do we have? Actually, we've been discussing doing maybe a volume two and possibly a three with you because there's just no way we can even come close to representing the stories you have. 
You know, right. that's the problem with your storied career. And thank <laughs> God you wrote a book because we need a book. Yeah, and and if, and I guess I don't know if you know, but at the end of the, in a certain part of the book, it directs you to my website because over a third of the book was cut out, and those sixty thousand words are are on my website for those that buy the book. And as as one reviewer said, uh, why did they cut this out? This is better than what's in the book. I didn't tell the editor that. <laughs> but figures. If you if you like what's in the book, you you'll you'll like every bit of what's behind the scenes there. Okay, so I'll well, give a quick history. Okay, but before you I, do, to be fair and answer your question, um, we're in Texas. You're uh, you're on with us at KLBJFM, the legendary rock and roll station in Austin. And with Dusty Hill passing, we had been working on a tribute, a 90-minute radio show that we're recording. So we do have JW from Lone... Uh, Lone Wolf Productions calling in in an hour. So, yep. Okay. We, we got a lot of time. Okay. I got it. Okay, so a brief history might be in order to explain the first gold record. Okay. Which is that, uh, like a lot of guys, I was in a high school band. Uh, we Not like a lot of guys, we got signed to Decca Records right out of high, right out of high school. And uh, the producer brought in a session guitarist to augment the band, a guy named Richie Podler, very talented musician, and as it turns out, an extremely talented engineer and ultimately producer. And when so we got dropped, we didn't have any hits, so we got dropped. And I went to Richie and and his studio and told him what had happened, and he said, "Oh, you guys were great. I'll get you a deal." And he did. <laughs> and when we went in his studio. Uh, we uh, the sound that came out of the speakers from the first track we laid down was so incredible to me, so, so emotional to me, much better than anything I'd heard at Capitol and Western, where we recorded the great studios where we recorded for Decca. That I literally in that moment turned to him and said, "Can you teach me how to do all this?" Mm. And he said, "No, I'm teaching Bill Cooper here. Go on out and do another take." But that was the defining moment for me, the aha moment that uh, set, set in stone what my life's work was going to be. That's fantastic, and Bill. That's fantastic. My, 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 uh, all of my aptitude was in math and science. And where that, where that part of the uh, left brain met the creative part of my right brain, I learned engineering very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that in less than three years, I was back at Podler's door begging him for a job. Where in you know less than three years earlier I didn't know what an equalizer was. Uh, now I felt confident enough that I could work in his studio, and it took me two months of begging. But he finally said, "All right, there's a demo session tomorrow morning. Let's see how you do on that." And that was a publishing demo where you went in, cut three or four songs, three or four tracks, threw vocals on them, threw mixes on them, and out the door they went. So I did that, and they said uh, I called Richie the next day and said, "How'd I do?" He said, yeah, they said you were fine. So what now? He said, well, there's another one tomorrow. Come and do that one. Different company. So, okay, so I went and did So hold on, Bill. Here's, here's what I want to do, though. For our listeners, Bill Shanae had worked with, and just listen to some of these bands. Bill Shanae had worked with Barbara Streisand, The Jacksons, Rod Stewart, Steely Dan, Whitney Houston, Dire Straits, Art Garfunkel, all of the Beatles, um, Carly Simon, Natalie Cole, Marvin Gaye, Miles Davis, 
George Benson, Rod Stewart. I mean, it just keeps Huey Lewis in the news. It just keeps going on and on. Bill, it's amazing. Don't forget Boz Skaggs. I love Boz Skaggs. I was with Virgin Records when we re-signed him, and some of that work I thought was some of his best work ever. Right. Um, Okay, so anyway, after the second demo session, I said, what's next? And Richie said, okay, come in tomorrow night and record Three Dog Night. And I went, huh? And I mean, I couldn't believe my ears because at that point, he was only engineering Three Dog Night. He would go on to produce the lion's share of their hits. But they were working on their second album, and it was being produced by a guy named Gabriel Meckler, who was Richie's biggest client, as he brought in Three Dog Night and um, Steppenwolf. And they oh, were nice. Bo- yeah. So I went in with Three Dog Night, and I cut a track called same thing called Richie the next morning what did Gabriel think he thought you were fine also so I went in the next night and cut another track same thing the next morning third night I got in trouble they wanted something on the guitar that I didn't know how to do undoubtedly from their first album that Richie had engineered being the great guitar player that he was he was able to help them with all kinds of guitar sounds and I couldn't do it so it got a little tense and I called Richie and he came down and that ended my tracking with with the band, but I did do some overdubs and I hung out as much as I possibly could to learn everything I could. So Richie made sure when the album was done, (laughs) he made sure that I got a a gold record. Unfortunately, uh, somehow my name didn't end up as as credited on the record. It only says engineered by Richie Podler, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the story. That was my first. So that was your first gold record. So was that a a single or for the whole album that you got the gold record? Whole album. Okay. great. What was the name of the album? Suitable for framing. (laughs) (laughs) How how fitting. How apropos. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm not not suitable for, not suitable for credit. Evidently. So I'm a kid in Detroit with the basement and we have a garage, you know, we have a band playing in the basement, playing the three dog night. Yeah. So again, it's great to have you on the promotion man podcast and radio show and Bill Shanae. Wow. I mean, such a life you've lived. And of course, this is more of a classic rock, active rock and roll audience. So we were, you know, wanted to hone in on some of the rock bands and some of the stories you might have. For example, you and I share Dire Straits. I was at Warner Brothers. I'll always remember getting the Sultans of Swing, or the debut album Advance, and sitting down and listening to it and uh, working that record with all my uh, associates throughout the, the country. What uh, album did you work with with Dire Straits? Their their last one. Okay, uh, I cut the tracks. I cut the tracks on uh, on every street. Uh, I had I had mixed uh, three or four, uh, I think four albums for Mark. Uh, different things: his pub band and a couple of movie soundtracks, whatnot, and uh, and then a great album he did, uh, a guitar album with Chet and um chet atkins yeah yeah and a great album and uh, while we were mixing that in my studio he announced that he was going to do another uh straits album and he wanted me to do it and so yeah i did the tracks on that which was especially fun because my good friend uh jeff picaro played drums on it and any chance i had to work with jeff was 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 a pleasure you know when, okay so when you measure the, the rock here's the thing richie podler's studio 
uh, like I said, he did he did Steppenwolf, he did Three Dog Night, he did Black Oak, Arkansas, he did Iron Butterfly, wow. uh, you know, quite a few, quite a list, Souther Hillman Fure, quite a few rock things back then in the <clears throat> end of the 1970s, early 70s. And because I ended up working in that studio, and I did a, a rock band called Smith, we had a top five hit, I yeah, think. Yeah, I uh, remember Smith. Uh, with, yeah, Baby It's You, a really good rock version of that. So when I left and went independent, I was kind of known as a rock guy because because I came out of that studio. And Richard Perry, the great record producer, Richard Perry, uh, had met me uh, on Barbara Streisand record. And I did a small stint at CBS. Actually, Clive gave me my break. Uh, I had started law school to make my parents be quiet because they were not in favor of a music career. My dad was a, a Jewish doctor, so you know what that means. It was <laughs> doctor or lawyer, Bill. Right. And uh, so I, I started law school. And uh, then after the first semester, I only had C's and a B. I was faking it because I didn't have time to do the reading with our classwork and sessions. So I quit for, I had quit college for two and a half years chasing my band. Now I quit a year and a half uh, for chasing music. And uh, a, a friend got a deal with Clive Davis and told him about me, and Clive called me and basically gave me my shot. So I met Richard Perry while I was wor- at CBS. I worked on a Streisand record, and he went to England to do a Carly Simon record and the the Year So Vain album, No Secrets. And he called me from England he had recorded it and mixed it, mixed all of it but two songs with Robin Cable, who was a great engineer that worked on early Elton John albums. And he called me and said, I'm, I'm saving the two rock songs for you because, uh, you know, and I said, oh, great. So he came and I mixed the two rock songs and then ended up mixing the whole album over. Oh. But uh, what's so interesting, I always loved that part of the story because 10 years later, because I had so much success basically in pop and R&B, uh, 10 years later, I couldn't get a rock act if I tried, uh, <laughs> you know, as much as I would like to a lot of, a lot of bands. Uh, so just, you know, unfortunately the record business has always been good at boxes, putting people in boxes. And first I was in the box and then I couldn't get back in the box. But I got to tell <laughs> you though, think, think about this, Bill. I mean, from a producer, engineer, mixer, whatever, I mean, when you say you work with Steely Dan, wow! I mean, to wow. me, you know, when I listen to that album, I still say sonically, it's probably one of the best albums I've ever heard in any genre. I agree wholeheartedly. It's so smooth. It's so balanced. It's so perfect. There's, it's bright. It's airy. It's tight. It's it's all of these things. I mean, Asia, Gacho, I mean, amazing albums. I saw a great documentary where they kind of broke that album down song by song. I and, saw that And too. how it was all put together. So you were there. Tell us, man, uh, what was it like working with Steely Dan? Okay, well, uh, Gary Katz, their producer, called me one day and said, you know, how would you like to record the next Steely Dan album? And I said, <laughs> let me think about it. Okay, uh, how about it? <laughs> Uh, but I must say that I had a little bit of concern because I had friends, again, Jeff Percaro and Michael Amarty, and the great keyboard player, producer, that had played on their previous records and had told me about their maniacal ways in the studio. And uh, I, I really I really like to move fast, act fast. I do everything kind of quickly. And my, my creative juices want to move quickly. You know, spending, uh, I, I don't spend, I can't spend 
six hours on a hi-hat sound, trying to get a hi-hat <laughs> to sound better. So uh, I, I like to move fast. So I was a little concerned, but all of my concerns were in vain because for that album, they changed everything up seemingly from how they had worked before, meaning that they had nothing but studio musicians, all the top studio musicians. They were very organized sessions, meaning we, we they organized in the sense that they started with a demo that the, the two guys, had, Donald and Walter, had made that were just piano and bass, and they were they were more than the outline for what was to happen. Uh, on more than one occasion, one of the musicians would say, guys, that sounds so good and feels so great. Why don't we just overdub the drums on that? And I think you've got a great track. And in every case, Donald said, no, no, we'll get it better. And... <laughs> So that's what how it went down. It was just so organized and professional and nothing about what I had heard about on the previous records. We started at two in the afternoon and never went super late into the evening. And it was just completely different than I had imagined. And I have to say that, you know, I've, obviously I've talked a lot about that with people over the years and especially lately now that I have a book out uh, about about that album and the music thereon. And or therein, and I have to say that when it was going down, I remember like it was yesterday. Every day after the session, I would take a cassette of what we had recorded. I'd pop it in my player in the car on the way home, and just marvel at what it was. And I remember wow. thinking, I couldn't. What is this? Wow. What is this? It's <laughs> it's a little jazzy, but it's not jazz. Right. It's a little sometimes bluesy, but it certainly isn't blues. A little rocky even sometimes, but it's not rock. Right. I don't know what in the heck to call this. And and even and a little poppy. Thing, I mean, it had a little bit of the pop and a element poppy. too. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. And and all I could call it was incredible. Incredible. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's well, it, funny. Let me go on just one more okay. little item. I think part of what you know has to be said is yes, there was outstanding musicianship, but uh, again, the outline that they were given was was completely there in almost every case, very 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 close to finished. And the it's what's so interesting is part of why the clarity and everything is so pre- is so wonderful on that record is the simplicity of it. When you when you you know you listen back and see because I still have the basic tracks, wow. um, and uh, sure they 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 did go into their microscope when they did overdubs for six nine months uh, after we cut the tracks that I wasn't involved with, but but they kept the feel completely of those original tracks. It's just uh, and and they didn't overdo it with overdubs. You know, it's a fairly simple. Uh, simply laid out record in terms of musically, which, you know, when, when things are well balanced in that perspective, uh, you get to hear everything, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to fight to hear anything. So all of these great elements are, are, are incredibly present. But I have to say, after watching that documentary and some of the things they said that you don't really pay attention to, uh, I heard uh-huh. him for the first time, I know. you know, after hearing this album a gazillion times, after I saw this documentary, I was like, I've never noticed that before until they pointed it out. So I know it's that underlying subliminal thing, and almost. and I think they also and Bill, you can confirm this, but from that documentary, they would have several drummers come in, several guitar players, yeah. several bass players. Mm-hmm. Then they would pick the very best takes of all of those musicians. So the musicians coming in didn't even know if they were going to end up on the final product. Right. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, 
uh, Gary told me from the beginning <clears throat> that he said, now, <clears throat> I need to warn you, it's going to be a revolving door of drummers. Oh, <laughs> so you're going, to be getting a, you're going to be getting a new drum sound. What every a pressure. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's how it went down, all right. Uh, well, I, and, and I'm... Then, uh, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and, and I marvel at this, this, the layers here, and I want to do this for the listeners. First, you have Bill Shanae who currently has a book out that we're going to keep talking about, that is the one that's in the studio working with the musicians. And they work and toil and work over all of this stuff, and then at some point, it's a final product. Then you have a promotion man, me, who then gets the record, and sometimes we get it without any writing, any anything, just a bio and a a sheet that tells us what the song's called, how long it is, who the publisher is, and so on. Then you have a program director whose responsibility is to play only the best music for his audience and his marketplace. And us three here were kind of the layers of how a a record came out, actually was built. It's then promoted by a promotion man and a record company. And then the program director in all these various stations around the country decides where does it fit his format, how it fits, and how often he'll play it. And then the listener then obviously gets a chance to hear it. And goes buy it. And goes and buys it. Yeah. Wow. Right. That, was, that was deep, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so let but, me tell yeah, everybody you know, the name of uh, Bill's book, by the way. I don't know if he said it. It's Chairman at the Board, right? Yeah. Okay. Chairman at Chairman the Board. I love the name of that book because it's so perfect for, for your you know expertise. Yeah, yeah. And the... Uh, I love the uh, subtitle they came up with, which was Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Wow. No um, doubt. But, but, but you know, to your previous point, uh, we, we should take a moment uh, to, to say, you know, that those, you know, those in those glory years, because the way you were talking about it, that, that big system uh, worked really well. Yeah. I mean, and the whole idea when budgets were, when sales were big, which meant income was big, which meant budgets were big. Uh, it, it gave people time to uh, artists the time to develop so that, you know, as you probably know, you, you probably had a, a first album from somebody that didn't do very well. And the second album, maybe and sometimes a third album. Uh, sometimes it would take three albums for an artist to really find their voice. And, uh, and I would say uh, Prince is a prime example of that. Prince is a prime. Actually, right. a lot of bands, yeah. though, quite yeah. frankly. And you know what's funny oh, about yeah. Alice Cooper's interview we did with Alice is back in his day, Bill, and you'll appreciate this. He said, you know, we would put the album out, let progressive FM radio play it, stand back and go, OK, that should be the single. Mm. Where right. where now or at least after that generation. Right you know, the single was already well thought out and so was single number two and number three in most cases. And the whole marketing plan. Yeah, and the whole marketing plan. Yeah. And uh, and a part of that uh, system that you mentioned and accurately depicted... Thank you. Uh, that, kind of, <laughs> ...that kind of was a bit frustrating in later years uh, was the how powerful radio became. Yes. Because and basically, radio... Radio, I mean, it, 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 the radio tail was wagging the musical dog. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a great example of that, which is <clears throat> on the Hard at Play album of Huey Lewis that I produced. 
And of course, he was pop rock, right? And you'd, that's what you'd call it. But we had we had a, a, a great song on there called "Couple Days Off," and it was written around these big, heavy guitars that Chris Hayes, the guitar player, had come up with this crunchy guitars. And the promotion man called me and said, "Bill, the top stations are not playing uh, heavy guitars. You've got to take those off." Oh my god! And I said, "Well, <laughs> you can't. It's written around guitars." Yeah. And he said, if you don't if you don't take those off, we're not going to get the top stations in the five major markets. We can't break top ten if you don't if you don't take them off. I said, What how what would you suggest I do? He said, How about acoustic guitars? I said, The song is written about the guy who is working working man five <laughs> days a week. All he needs is a couple days off. It's angst driven. Right. Acoustic guitars don't have enough <laughs> angst. They don't all run by, <laughs> by Huey. Uh, they don't have so any angst. By, <laughs> yeah, so I ran it by Huey, and he agreed with me. He said, that's ridiculous. It'll go out as it is. I Funny hear enough, I, you know? I hear he's a Funny great enough, guy. We had Jack Forsyth uh, as a guest, and he really told great stories about Huey as well. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful guy. Very, very sad what's happened to him. But yes, yeah. Yep. Terrible. But anyway, to finish the story, uh, the single went to number 10. Mm. So to say that the promotion man knew his business, that's for sure. Right. Because uh, and he called me afterwards and said, "I hate to say I was right, but you know, I think you guys could have had a number one record if, if you know, if you if you if, if five five years earlier." Okay, so so uh, Bill, let's fast track. My career at Warner Brothers was back in vinyl in the you know in the late seventies. Then at Virgin Records, it was in the early nineties. I remember when we put out a Janet Jackson album called Janet, we had five, six, eight, twelve mixes on specific songs. Right. I mean, yeah. honest to God, I don't even know the kind of money well, they wrapped into well, some of these. Well, there was one for Top 40, there was one for R&B, there dance was one clubs. for Dance Club, the 12-inch remix. Yeah. So how, how did that affect your world? Well, it was just weird. It was just weird to get called to do to mix a single, and there were going to be uh, you know three or four other mixes, right. uh, different kinds of mixes on it. I uh, yeah I did, I remember doing one for Whitney Houston for Clive, and uh, yeah let's talk about that when, one. Uh, yeah, let's talk about I will uh, always love you, which is probably one of the biggest songs ever, and certainly from Whitney for Houston. Artist, yeah. yeah. Talk, let's yeah. talk about that song. I know Dolly yeah. Parton's happy she recorded it. Yes, she is. <laughs> yes, she is. Um, okay, well, that, uh, that was this. Uh, for uh, Obviously, it was for The Bodyguard, the movie, her movie debut. And in the movie, she plays, of all things, a rock star. And uh, the, uh, the songs that she sang in the movie were all records that she would lip sync. Uh, while she was on stage in the movie. Mm -hmm. But the last song was to be this song that actually Kevin Costner came up with the song idea. And uh, she, it was, she knew that it was going to be the last scene in the movie. The camera's going to be right in her face. It's a ballad. You can't lip sync ballads very well. She said, I, I want to do it live while we film it. Wow. So David Foster said, uh, asked me to get a truck and meet him in Florida because they were going to shoot that scene at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. And, and that's what, what indeed happened. And we went in, uh, and it was a small, you know, multi-purpose room uh, with, a, with a, what, what looks like a stage. But, of course, in the movie, she's in front of 20,000 people or something. 
And uh, the most interesting part of that was uh, here, by that point in her career, she had sung in front of you know, uh, crowds of 100,000 in some cases, but you know was very, very used to performing in front of lots of people. And yet she was actually nervous. Mm. The first couple of takes were actually not very good. And I think it was... It got to take three, which was finally a little bit better, and uh, they decided to take a break. And at that point, <clears throat> excuse me, at that point, Kevin Costner came in the truck to listen, and uh, he said, she'll get it, she'll get it. And I said, I, I have no doubt. And take four, uh, I can assure you, when she went to that last and I. Uh, <laughs> she nailed it. It wasn't just the hair on my neck that went flying up, oh, I guarantee you. But it was so interesting to me that here she'd sung in front of so many people, and now with just a crew of maybe 30 or 40 people, she was she acted nervous. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the camera in her face kind of thing, but yeah. she certainly nailed it. That well, she did. And when you talk about the hair standing on the back of your neck, we've had so many guests that refer to that. Yeah. Because that's what music can do to you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what about uh, eclectic folks like Miles Davis? What, what's it? What's it like working with a man like that? Wow. Um, okay. Well, the the <laughs> first time I worked with him, the first two times, I, he wasn't there. That was just mixing. Okay. Uh, a couple of albums, but then uh, I was asked to go and record him on the European jazz festivals. You know, follow him around with a truck and record uh, the shows to make a, an album. And the first one I, we showed up was in uh, the south of France, and uh, it was an outdoor festival. And uh, so uh, Tommy LaPuma, who was producing it, came up with Miles and introduced me. And uh, I no sooner said, you know, uh, you know, an honor to meet you, when the road manager walked up and said, Miles, the equipment didn't arrive from the States. I've worked all day and I've got everything covered. It won't be a problem. And he just looked up at him and said, I ain't playing with no frickin', well, it wasn't that word, <laughs> no frickin' rented equipment. He canceled the show. Wow. We, he canceled the show, and we, uh, which was, of course, odd to me because he had his horn. It wasn't a rented horn, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it would have gone down fine. But we went back uh, in the same car together to the hotel, and he was just muttering the whole way, even up the elevator, about how they could, we had plenty of time to get this together. Who, who's working for me? What's going on here? Yeah. Well, I want to take the next one. All right, go ahead. Come on. I well, want I, I just got a great quick segue. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay. okay. Because what made me think about this is, uh, and I think this will be a good segue from that story is, you know, you're used to working inside some of the greatest studios ever. Oh, right. When you're out in the field, that's a whole different story. And even though there's been some great live albums released, it's tell tell us the difference of working in the studio oh, as question. compared to working in the field. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, uh, okay, uh, I'll start with the first one I did, which was Barbara Streisand live at the Forum, Jeez. and uh, I, <laughs> okay. I, I had never done I had never done a live album, and Richard Perry pushed me into it. I said, you know, Richard, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. I've never done it, and he said, oh, you'll do fine, and uh, in. And, and it, this was the worst kind. Why? Because it was a one shot, meaning there was a rehearsal, a, a rehearsal slash sound check in the afternoon and the show is at night. And so there you go. You better wow. you better grab it because you're only going to get one t one chance at it. Then a few years later, uh, Motown called me and asked, uh, said that they're going to do uh, Marvin Gaye live. 
Oh my goodness. He had stopped singing when his singing partner uh, unexpectedly died. He was very shook up about it, but he was back. He had just made a good album, and now he was going to go out on tour again, and they thought, you know, it's a gamble, but maybe we should do it. And I sat there with Suzanne DePass, who was the girl that uh, ran the show, really, Barry's right-hand girl. And uh, I said, I have two uh, requests, well, demands, really. One, <laughs> I want credit. I want credit on the record because I had, at that point, 75, I had mixed two or three Motown albums. They never said mixed by Bill Schnee. It always said special thanks, Bill Schnee, and then engineer, their Motown engineer that had recorded it. And so I said, I have to, ha- I- I've got to get credit. She said, absolutely. And I said, and I really want a chance to mix it. You don't have to use my mix. Marvin doesn't like it. He wants to mix it himself, whatever. But I really want to just get a shot at mixing it. And she said, no problem. And all I can say is one out of two isn't bad. Yes, I did get the credit. But no, they didn't let me mix it. (laughs) Until about 20 years later, if you can believe this, Motown is sold. And they have a girl that runs what they call special products division. And she calls me up and says, um, I want to remix Marvin's live album, and I want you to do it. Wow. Because I've never heard of a situation where a very successful record gets remixed 20 years later. And I don't know why. Marvin had was no longer with us. I don't know what it was, but I did it. And what's so funny about that to me is that the tapes came in, uh, analog tapes came in, and on the you know I noticed right away my handwriting, of course, your handwriting doesn't change. Wow. And neither, and neither does your sixth sense of humor because on the, <laughs> on the show that night, there, were, there, was, there was the best R&B band you could put together, just the very best guys from L.A. playing it, up in Oakland it was. And there was a kicking horn section and a string section. And, you know, in a live situation like that, there was very little chance that the strings were going to get heard very well with fidelity, with the, all of that screaming going on stage, strings being the light instruments that they are. <clears throat> so on the tracks, with the two tracks of strings, there was an asterisk, and I had written on the bottom, the key to the asterisk was, good luck with this. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's funny. Uh, and that's, but I, I, I did mix it, and I loved mixing it. And uh, I, I really do think my mix was a little better. And uh, unfortunately, of course, uh, Marvin never got to hear it because he was no longer with us. And see, that was my question was I wanted to ask about Marvin Gaye because you wanted to ask about Miles Davis. Yeah. Two just iconic, yeah. amazing individuals. Well, um, there's so many other bands that we could talk about, but one of the biggest is the Beatles. Yeah. And you worked with all of them? Yeah. Uh, this was... This was an album that uh, it was a big success at the time, but uh, and they're supposedly uh, re- redoing it, uh, you know, for a 40th anniversary uh, because it's somewhat overlooked. And what it was was Richard Perry had met Ringo when he was in England uh, doing a record with Harry Nielsen. Harry and Ringo were good friends. Yes, and he, Ringo kept talking uh, to Richard. And they decided, Richard called me one day and said, we're going to do an album with Ringo. <clears throat> I said, great. And he said, yeah, and Jim Keltner is going to play drums. I said, what? Ringo's not going to play drums on his own album? He said, no, no, he wants to play with Jim Keltner. Wow. He had done that on, on a George Harrison solo album, one of his albums. And so uh, in, in I came to do the setup. And, of course, on the Sunday night before we started on Monday, and there I was pinching myself as I look at, you know, the flight cases that say Ringo Starr 
the Beatles. And uh, it may not have been a kit that was on a Beatle record, but it was still Ringo's kit. So we got started. We cut a song or two. And then George flew over from England and he listened to what we had. And he, uh, oh, let me put a guitar on this. And we did wow. some overdubs on his stuff. <laughs> and then he brought a song over that he had produced on Ringo called Photograph. <clears throat> and the, the line of the song is the, the the singer has lost his girlfriend and so all he has is a photograph for the memory and he had as a result he had cut it quite in a quite forlorn setting you know it was a little too sad maybe so it was decided that we should recut it which we did kind of in the uh wall of sound phil specter uh theme mm-hmm. and that worked pretty well i think that was, i think it was a number one record and um and then came the end of the week where, where Richard said, by the way, John Lennon is coming in on Monday. <laughs> no way. <laughs> he has a song for Ringo. And so when that day came, when that day came here, you know, up to that point, the quiet Beatles, George, had not been quiet at all. Ringo was Ringo. You, you know, what you see is what you get, just as happy-go-lucky as, as always. And now <clears throat> John Lennon comes in the room and it was a whole nother kettle of fish. All eyes went to John, and it was all about John's show. And he started and taught the song uh, to everybody. And it was obvious as he ran the song down that he was running the show. And when he was happy with the take, that would be the take. And that was the only time that three of the Beatles played together or ever would. That's, that's unique in that regard. Wow. And the, the craziest thing about that whole set, those sessions, was... Paul wrote a song also, and unfortunately, he couldn't come to America because he had a drug bust, and the U.S. government had forbid him for coming for a year. But if he could have come over, who knows that there might have been a Beatle reunion, because the bad blood between he and John had kind of started to settle, and everyone seemed to be there to give Ringo a leg up. And so, you know what I mean, not thinking about a Beatle record, but a but a Ringo record and everybody pitching in together, we might well have had a Beatle reunion. But wow. Alas, do, you, we had to, do you remember we the had song that, that John Lennon had done at that session? Do you remember the title of it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's called I'm the Greatest. And <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a song Fitting. that he actually, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a song that he had written after the breakup for himself, but he reworded it, uh, kind of reworked it for Ringo. And, um, when we when we cut the track after we cut the track he put a vocal on it so that a rough vocal so that Ringo could learn the melody from it in the following days and uh, I, those were only sixteen track days so we were definitely that, that vocal was not to live forever mm-hmm. but fortunately when we were ready to erase it I had the presence of mind to take uh, take it down a, a rough mix of it with him on it and I just put that away for years and then in uh, I think it was in the late nineties there was a, a retrospective that they were doing on John and the, they called me to ask some questions about recording that song. And I said, Oh, have I got something for you guys? Oh, and I, wow. I sent them the rough mix with, uh, with his voice on it. Holy cow. That's great, man. You're, you're, you sound like me, man. I'm, I'm always recording no matter what's going on. I, I like to make sure to capture the moment just in case I can, you know, that's great that yeah, you saved absolutely. that. Absolutely. 
Well, let's go after another really iconic rocker, Rod Stewart. Yeah. Where were you in his career? Because obviously Rod has had a quite a few morphs of different careers, and I hear that he's actually getting back together with Ronnie Wood. To do the faces. To yeah. do the faces thing again, which would be really fun. Yeah. But what uh, what relationship did you have with Rod? Um, I, I'm not going to say unfortunately, but unfortunately it was just with the songbook albums, working, okay. on, <clears throat> working on the songbook albums that he did, uh, which is an interesting kind of story. I, I hadn't worked with Richard Perry in a long time, and he, he had cut a, a, a song that ended up in a movie uh, with an R&B group, that, and he, he was never happy with the solo, so he wanted to, to redo the solo. So he came to my studio. He had sold his studio by this point, and we, we replaced the, the solo with a sax instead of vibes that was on it previously. And at the end of the session, he played me some an idea that he and Rod had been kicking around. And it was Rod singing some of the Amer- great American songbook songs. But he had done it, to, I guess, in an attempt to make it, quote, modern. He had done it all with in-the-box stuff, you know, program drums and that kind of thing. And this was, I mean, it just threw me into the left field for two reasons. One, his voice was not healthy. You know, he had that operation that uh, fortunately he did recover from. Uh, but at, this was kind of close to the to the operation, so his voice was still not back to what it would become again. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get behind this all the you know phony instruments for that kind of music. But anyway, uh, he changed labels. He went from Warner to Atlantic, I think, or Atlantic to Warner. I can't remember. And uh, with this idea, but they said, well, let's do a rock album first. You are Rod Stewart after all. And uh, then, <laughs> right then we'll on. talk about. That. Then we'll talk about that. And so he did a rock album, and it didn't do very well. And he left the label, and uh, Richard Perry went to Clive with the idea, and Clive absolutely loved it. And uh, that that was the beginning of that series of, what, five of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, uh, yeah. which, which made total sense, all to be honest very with well. you. So, Bill... Yeah, all, all, and, and, oh, but wait one second. The, the one that was kind of the most fun for me, although kind of you know tip messed up in one sense was the r&b i can't remember the title of it now he did a you know a r&b album in that series um uh between i guess i think between four and five uh he went to the 70s r&b and it was two producers uh steve jordan and steve tyrell and jordan did the up kicking kind of uh, songs from that era, you know, lots of the Motown songs and whatnot. And Tyrell did more of the Philly songs, the prettier stuff. And so it was, it really should have been two albums, but in the, uh, Clive and Rod got in a fight and Clive basically backed out of the album. Uh, and I, I, I you know, Clive was great at broad brushstrokes, absolutely great. Um, you know, and I think he probably would have caught on and said, wait a minute, this is two albums. It doesn't belong as one album. But it still was good. Well, one of the things that I think all three of us have experienced that the general public has doesn't understand is we get introduced to this music before the general public. And sometimes it's incredible, iconic albums that we had no idea would become something we would still hear 30, 40, 50 years later. We're doing a ZZ Top, Dusty Hill tribute show um, 
at, at this recording session and bringing up ZZ Top uh, music and what it means to people. But my question to you, Bill, is with all of the various artists that you had a wonderful experience with, was there anyone in particular where you had something way before the general public and you just knew without a shadow of a doubt it was going to it was going to crawl all the way to the top of the charts? Uh, yeah, a couple come to mind right right off the bat. There more than that, but uh, the first one would be um, Gladys Knight. Uh, oh. I mixed uh, speaking of albums I didn't get credit on uh, Gladys Knight with the song "Neither One of Us," which oh, actually. Wow. Good song. It was the song that would bring her career back. She'd been in kind of a lull for a few years, and it brought it back. And I, I, I mixed that song, and I just knew it was a smash. And I played it for all my friends, and I was just thrilled to, for it to come out. And it didn't come out. They, they shelved it. And, you know, that song was actually a country song uh, that <clears throat> and was written by Jim Weatherly, who passed away recently. And he, it was a, you know, a great song, and she did an outstanding performance on it, and I, I just thought it was great. And then it, it finally, uh, you know, she left Motown and went to Buddha Records, and I've still to this day, unfortunately, never met Gladys. That's the problem with, you know, the mixer side of me. I, a lot of times I don't get to meet the, the artist. Um, but I'd love to know if that if that was part of the reason that them shelving that or just the whole controversy because I could it's why they left Motown because I could easily see Motown going, you know, the, hearing the country side of that which isn't that country, and and uh, you know being upset about it. Funny enough, she goes to Buddha and ended up having three more, two or three, two for sure more hits again by Jim Weatherly, again, country songs, <laughs> Midnight Train to Georgia and whatever yeah, else. Wow. And, wow. Uh, and she ended up that next year with two nominations, one, neither one of us for vocal performance and then one of the others on Buddha. And uh, so that, that's what, what can I tell you? And that, the other one that comes to mind, this is a, I think this is a great story. I'm in the middle of recording Asia, and oh. Steve Gadd is to come into town. And I, I had fallen in love with Steve Gadd's playing on 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover um, <laughs> on Paul Simon's single. And his snare work, the drag snare stuff, was just wonderful. So I was very excited about it when he was going to be come in and record. And uh, after the first day, <clears throat> I called my friend Richard Perry and said, you know, the Steve Gadd, right? Yeah. said, he's, I'm recording him here with Steely Dan, and he is a monster. And he said, do you think I could have a session with him? I said, well, he's leaving town after tomorrow. I know that. Uh, well, what, what time do you start? And I said, 2 o'clock. Well, what about at 10 a.m.? I said, all right, let me check. I called Gary Katz, and Gary is a big fan of Richard's. Tremendous respect for him. Well deserved it. And he said, okay, uh, fine. But, you know, he, he also knew Richard's ways, and Richard, Richard would take long time getting a track it was you know let's try another one well let's try he would look for things to so he could get another one richard always loved options so he so gary knowing that said just please get him out at one o'clock because if we start late the donald and walter are going to kill me i said i'll I'll just turn the speakers off believe me (laughs) so and he came uh and he comes with this little English fellow, very animated little guy named Leo Sayer. And we proceeded to record a song called You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, yeah. which which was the first single from that album. And I, I, I don't remember if it's number one. I know it's top five. And uh, I, I, it's, when he went out to do the rough vocal, 
Uh, you got the cute way of walking. Ooh, nice job, Bill. <laughs> it hooked me right away. And by golly, uh, that was one where just with the basic track and his rough vocal on it, I, I you knew. knew that was going to be a hit. That's such a great feeling. Well, thank you so much for this time we've shared together. Yeah. Promotion Man podcast, Promotion Man radio show. Bill, what a career. And the name of the book again? Chairman at Chair- the board. And, and, right. I'm, and I'm glad you brought up Paul Simon because Paul is in our listening range now, who's a resident of the the metropolis of Wimberley, Texas. So maybe he's listening today and, and got to relive some of it with you as well, man. Nice. Great. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world, told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. We appreciate you subscribing and spreading the word, and thanks for listening.